Please pray again with me. Father, we thank you that all things are under your perfect sovereign control. We thank you, Father, that the weather, as we see displayed this morning, is glorious and changing and reflects your faithfulness and, again, your constant control of all things. Father, we thank you that uh, even the king of Tyre and Satan, the power behind him, as we read this morning from Ezekiel, is under your control. Father, we thank you that the truth of the fall of man is a truth that was brought about according to your one decree. And Father, that although it may weigh heavy on our hearts to study a text like this, Father, this is where you must bring our hearts in order for us to receive the glorious good news that you've given us in Jesus. So Father, I pray that you would use this truth in your people's heart, even as we Sit under this word this morning, humble us by it, make our hearts sensitive to your will. And Father, um, I pray, Father, that you would save and sanctify uh, in this room today, in this hour, uh, by your powerful word. We pray in your son's name. Amen. I want to start this morning by telling you about Almaz, a woman from the Ethiopian village of Chirigu. Although Almaz had lost three of her nine children to sickness, her family was still able to enjoy a somewhat stable life with her husband making a subsistence living, farming coffee and wheat. That is, until one evening when all of a sudden they heard gunshots and people screaming. They looked outside and saw people fleeing and realized something was wrong. Her husband went out to look, and that was the last time Almaz saw him. When her husband didn't return, Almaz gathered their six children and started walking towards Haru, a nearby village. She and her family took shelter together with some others in an abandoned school building that would be their home for several months. A few days later, some other villagers informed Almaz that her husband had been killed. Here is a description in her words. My heart shattered as my son brought back the body of his father to Haru. But the most difficult day was yet to come. Unable to cope with his father's loss, my 23-year-old son committed suicide just a week after we had left our home. When he found out that my husband passed away, he electrocuted himself. When I heard about this, a part of me died as well. Now, having lost her husband and his income and her older son as well, Almaz wonders how she will be able to provide for her five remaining children. How can this be? Doesn't your heart cry out that it's not right for such pain and suffering to be in the world? Or at least that it's wrong for a woman and her five children to find themselves in such circumstances due to a village gunfight that their family had nothing to do with? And as far as innocent suffering goes, you know that this doesn't even scratch the surface. Why do 10,000 children die from hunger each day? Why are over 600,000 babies murdered through abortion each year in this country? Why in the past year has a virus and the response to that virus run rampant across the globe, costing many lives and livelihoods, and threatening to alter the way work and social lives and worship will look for the foreseeable future for pretty much every one of us? How can these things be right? Doesn't God care? Why doesn't he do something about it? 
Now, these questions might seem particularly pressing when we think of what we learned about God's goodness the last time we were in Genesis. In Genesis 2, God graciously provided blessing on top of blessing. Not just food and water, but variety and breathtaking beauty. And God's crowning gift of goodness was his creation of man in his image, and then his provision of fellowship within humanity that reflected his eternal joy in the Trinity. At the end of chapter 2, the first couple, Adam and Eve, inhabit this perfect paradise with more goodness and beauty and enjoyment than they could ever have asked for. Adam and Eve had everything they needed, including God's instructions, to bless the entire creation as God's vice regents. How did things get from that point to the kinds of human misery represented by the few items I've just mentioned? How could things go from what they were supposed to be, life and goodness, to evil and misery and death? The answer is found beginning in our text for today, the setting of which is the very same garden, the Garden of Eden, in which God had placed so much goodness. And so if you haven't already done so, please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3 and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, as we have seen in our previous three sermons from Genesis... God is using Moses' pen in these early chapters of the book to answer life's most important questions. And as I've mentioned previously, these questions are raised earlier in Scripture in the book of Job. And perhaps most prominent among the big questions in Job is sort of a more complex version of the question we're considering this morning. In that book, it goes along these lines. Is it possible, or is it even right, that innocent people suffer? And so it is with great intentionality that the Genesis narrative sets about answering this question. Now what we're going to find is that our text today is only the first of several sections in chapter 3 that work together to answer this question in its entirety. So we're not going to get our whole answer today in terms of why the innocent or whether the innocent suffer. But what we will see, and we'll see this in the three stages of sin you find on your outline, is a very carefully laid out answer to part of that question. And the answer is this. 
sin and death are in the world, and so you could say suffering is in the world, because of man's rebellious failure to subdue the creation. Now I say this is carefully laid out because God, through Moses, reports the facts of what happened in the garden in a very detailed and sequential fashion. Beginning in verse 1 with the first stage of sin's corruption of creation, number 1, the approach of sin. Read with me from verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. The first thing to notice here is a major break in the narrative flow. You see, there's a a grammatical construction in Hebrew that indicates continued progression in historical narrative. Generally, in this way of writing Hebrew, each phrase in historical narrative starts with action. For example, then God made, then he said, and it was, then he saw. Each phrase continuing the sequence of the narrative. Now, I mentioned this here because here we find a break in that flow. That's what the word now indicates at the beginning of verse 1. This is a contrast with what came before in chapter 2. And the significance of this is that up until this point, what has been described is this immense overflow of goodness coming from God. And so this narrative break indicates a major contrast with that immense overflow of goodness. And the break in the narrative is connected grammatically with the one through whom the opposite of goodness is introduced. Now, the serpent. So you have, from chapter 1, everything good, everything good, everything very good. Now, chapter 3, on the other hand, the serpent. Now, the first question to address here is who or what is the serpent? And because, believe it or not, commentators argue some that this is simply a snake, I want to make sure you see from the text at least one reason why it would be unlikely that this is just an ordinary snake. What in the text tells us that this isn't just an ordinary snake. It talks, right? We find later in verse 1, and the serpent said to the woman. So that's from this immediate text. We can know that this is more than just a snake, and that will be important to keep in mind as we proceed. I would also point out that the rest of the Bible confirms the identity of the serpent as Satan. For example, the book of Revelation describes him in these words, and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. And before Moses even wrote Genesis, the book of Job had quite a bit to say about Satan. Job is actually the first place where he is called by the name Satan, a name that means adversary or opponent. And it's immediately obvious in Job that Satan sets himself up not only as the opponent of God, he is clearly also the opponent of the righteous man, Job making the accusation that Job would forsake God if he was allowed to suffer. So here we have Moses describing the scene in which this adversary, Satan, the serpent, where he first seeks to bring his corruption into God's creation. This makes the serpent, who is Satan, the means of sin's approach towards God's earthly creation. And we continue reading of the serpent from verse 1, that he was more crafty, than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now, two things to see here. First, God had made the serpent. He was one of God's creatures, one of the beasts of the field. Now, I'll point out the significance of this in a moment. But secondly, the serpent is described by the Hebrew word arum, which is translated crafty. 
And that's a good translation. Let me ask, is it a good thing or a bad thing to be crafty? It really could go either way, right? And the same is true of that Hebrew word. The word arum can be translated negatively, as in cunning, manipulative, calculating in an evil way. Or the same word throughout Proverbs is translated positively, as prudent or even wise. But importantly, either way, this word, arum, has a component of knowledge. One who is arum, clever, either for good or bad, is acting with some sort of knowledge. So the serpent, and we know him to be the adversary, Satan, he is more crafty than any other of God's creatures, but he is one of God's creatures nonetheless. He shows up in the garden, this perfect paradise, and in the next words in verse 1 we read, And he said to the woman, Now, after noting that this is a speaking serpent, the next thing to notice here is to whom he addresses his words. And remember, Moses has gone to the trouble to tell us that he's crafty. The serpent knows what he's doing in choosing to address the woman. He says these words, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now imagine this from the perspective of a parent, and many of you are parents. Imagine that you've instructed your children not to leave the yard. In fact, you've told them that if they leave the yard, for example, to play in the street, there's a good chance they'll die. Now imagine that an older child shows up who would like nothing better than to see harm come to your children. And he questions your word to them. He starts to suggest that for a parent to make a rule like that for a child would be overly restrictive. He suggests that your restriction, which you gave for your children's good, you really only gave because you knew they'd have more fun if they left the yard. And you want to keep all the fun for yourself. That's why you made the rule, he says. Now, if you overheard this exchange happening, obviously you would know immediately that this older child was trying to drive a wedge between you and your children. And we'll see in a moment in Eve's response that the serpent's crafty tactic meets immediately with a measure of success. But before we move on to what Eve says, I want you to notice something else in the larger context. Although the serpent addressed his words to the woman, the two of them were not alone in the garden. Look a little ways down in the uninterrupted narrative. In the latter half of verse 6, it says this, She, Eve, gave also to her husband with her. What's the significance of this? There's no entry point in the text for Adam. He, Adam, was with Eve the whole time the serpent was talking to her. Now, in the illustration I gave a moment ago, I mentioned the idea that the older child addressed the younger and more susceptible of your children and questioning your instructions to them. That's part of what's going on here. That's part of the serpent's craftiness. Back in chapter 2, it was to the man, before Eve's creation, that God gave the instructions about not eating from the tree of knowledge. It was Adam primarily, and in chapter 2, it was Adam alone who had received the instructions and the charges over God's creation as God's king priest in the garden. And so, when this serpent, and remember, he was one of the beasts which the Lord God had created, when the serpent shows up with this unruliness, this questioning of God's word, whose job was it primarily to answer the serpent? Not Eve's. It was Adam's job. And he immediately shirks his responsibility, allowing his wife to answer the serpent. Why? Men, why is it that we push our responsibility to lead spiritually off onto our wives? 
Why do we have this tendency? And it's rampant in the world, but we know that we are not immune to this in the church. Why do we have this tendency to let women do the leading in terms of what is best for us, for them, for our children, both spiritually and otherwise? Now, I'm sure there are many answers to this question, but the one that comes to my mind quickest is, first off, this way looks easiest. I imagine Adam thought, if I have her lead on this, I'm covered. And we'll see later, this is exactly what he's thinking. When God questions him later, he very quickly shifts the blame to Eve. So perhaps Adam's thinking something like, I'm off the hook. The serpent's talking to her, not to me. Let's just have a listen and see what he says. And I know this is early in the story, but we know how this turns out, don't we? This may have looked like the easy way, but in fact it didn't turn out that way, did it? Men, we have a God-given responsibility to lead our wives and our families. When attacks come, even if they come directed at our wives or children, tempting them to go astray in ways that seem not to affect us, we have the responsibility to lead them spiritually. It is not only okay for us to intervene and to lead, it is required. And it is not okay to look to your wife to lead, for her to take the cover spiritually for your family. Husbands and fathers learn here from the original failure of a man to lead and realize this and submit to it. You must lead in your home. Now looking back at the text, read from verse 2, Eve's response to the serpent. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Now, the woman's response is not all bad. She does correct the serpent a little bit. But notice two ways in which she makes God's instructions harsher and more restrictive than what they actually are. First, whereas God had said, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, she leaves out any tree and eat freely. And secondly, she adds to God's restriction. God had only said never to eat from the tree. He had said nothing about touching it. What we find here is that Eve has begun to follow the serpent in these rather subtle ways in his characterization of God as stingy and restrictive. And friends, this can be such a destructive part of how we tend to speak and act. Rather than seeing God's instructions as clear and sufficient and good and actually freeing, we tend to mischaracterize them or even to add to them, making them seem harsh and overly restrictive and burdensome. How many times have you heard or even thought some of these things yourself, perhaps in response to stringent rules professing Christians have made for themselves or for others? Things like, God's word is burdensome. Christians are harsh. The Bible takes away freedom. Christians are intolerant. God isn't fair. God isn't generous. He's stingy. Friends, what value is there to extreme restrictiveness? to applying God's instructions or adding to them in such a way as to make them needlessly burdensome to the flesh? Paul gives the answer to this question in Colossians 2, where he writes this. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So be careful of this, friends. Do not make Eve's mistake in following the serpent. Do not misapply and do not add restrictions to the rules God has given. Instead, trust that God's rules are in themselves good and freeing 
and sufficient. And you will see when you do that they are. And what you need to do is humbly and joyfully submit to his rules as he gave them for your own good. Now, looking at verse 4, sin's approach into the garden moves from subtle to more explicit. The crafty serpent can tell from the woman's words that he has her, that Eve is starting to follow his way of thinking. He can tell from her words that she's starting to question the goodness and the reliability of God's word. And so he goes for it. In direct contradiction of what God had said, we read in verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Now, if the serpent's questioning of God's word was unruly and deserving of a response that would subdue his rebellion, this is doubly so. This is unruliness to the extreme. It's bold and it's blatant opposition to God. God had said to Adam, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. And the serpent is saying, if you eat from it, you surely will not die. So at this point, it's even clearer that Adam, with the authority God had given him, should have ruled over the snake and subdued it. He should have done something along the lines of what Jesus did in Matthew 4 when he said these words, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. But Adam remained silent and let the snake keep talking. The serpent continues, verse 5, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here the theme of knowledge even more clearly emerges, and we're going to see it continue all the way through verse 7. We saw already that Satan is acting in a crafty way, in a way that we might say is based on an anti-God knowledge. And now he is hinting, and notice this, there is no command or even direct suggestion here. He is hinting that the woman should join him in this anti-God knowledge. Now, the serpent says that God has knowledge that he's keeping from Adam and Eve. This is a knowledge apparently obtained by the serpent that they also will gain immediately if they take and eat what God has forbidden. And this knowledge, he says, will make them like God, knowing good and evil. Now, we'll touch more in a moment on the nature of this knowledge, but for now, realize that the approach of sin into the garden is complete. What had been all goodness and beauty and abundance flowing from God has been jarringly rocked by the approach of this serpent and his questioning of God's word and his goodness. Adam, tasked with ruling and subduing the creation, has sat by silently as this craftiest of creatures has led his wife to question their creator's goodness, his kind and loving intention in giving instructions to them. The first stage of sin's corruption of the garden is complete, leading to stage number two, the entryway of sin. Read with me from verse six. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Now notice first, generally, what is being described in the first part of verse 6. That Eve saw, that she delighted, and that she desired. What we have here is a description of what is going on in Eve's mind, in her heart, in her inner person. Because the human heart is the entryway of sin. 
What Eve's words had begun to express in verses 2 and 3, the thought that God was withholding goodness from her, this thought now becomes fully formed in her heart. Next, pay close attention to these words. The woman saw that the tree was good. She saw that it was good. She saw that it was good. Does that remind you of anything from earlier in Genesis? Words very much like these are repeated seven times in the creation narrative in chapter 1. God saw that it was good. There, the judge of what was good for creation and for man was God. Here, Eve takes for herself the right to determine what is good. And note this. What she is determining is good for food is the very food God had said would kill her if she ate it. And this helps us, I think, with answering the question I alluded to a moment ago about what exactly is the knowledge of good and evil. To put it plainly, what the forbidden tree offered and what the serpent wanted Adam and Eve to join him in was the position of rejecting what God said was right and wrong, or good and evil, and instead to decide for themselves what was right and what was wrong. You see, although God had given them an intellect and a conscience which would help them situationally to discern right from wrong, in terms of the big picture, deciding what was good and what was evil, God had not left that responsibility to Adam and Eve. Rather, he had laid things out simply for them. He had given them some positive commands. They were to fill the earth, rule and subdue the creation, and eat freely from the delicious and beautiful abundance he had given. And then he had given them a single negative command. He had decided for them and told them what was right and what was wrong. And so the knowledge of good and evil, as one commentator puts it, is not something God was keeping from them, but that he was keeping for them. As he taught them how they were to live, how they were to relate to him, and how they were to be a blessing to his creation. But now, through the serpent, they faced a choice. Rely on God to tell me what is right or wrong, what is good or evil for me, or pursue such wisdom for myself to be a room, to be crafty like the serpent, and to choose human autonomy and human wisdom. To decide for myself, to take for myself the knowledge of good and evil. And the narrative lets us see what's going on in Eve's heart in response to this question. The woman saw that the tree whose fruit God had warned was fatal was actually good for food. What had been God's purview to declare what was good, Eve, in this moment, takes to herself. And we read further, this is still what's going on in her heart, Eve saw that the forbidden fruit was a delight to the eyes. Eve has decided that what God had forbidden is actually beautiful. It has become appealing to her eyes. Eve sees, thirdly, and most prominently given the repeated theme of knowledge in the text, that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Now remember, God had given her nothing but goodness and beauty and pleasure and joy. Faced with the choice between submitting to God's revealed wisdom and choosing her own, Eve in her heart has now decided to take to herself the determination of what is good and what is evil. 
Now, a couple of points to note here. First, consider how Eve is buying into the promises of sin. Eve has decided that the fruit God has forbidden is good for her body, that it is delightful to her eyes, and that it is desirable for wisdom. She's going after it with her thoughts and with her emotions. The pull is becoming strong. Secondly, it's good to realize that this description of what's going on in Eve's heart becomes something of a paradigm within the Bible for the way sin comes to fruition in the human experience. Listen to these words from 1 John 2. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Friends, this is what we do every time we sin based on what we perceive through our body's cravings or what our eyes see or what our thoughts tell us, we decide that God's word is wrong, that it would actually be good for us to take whatever it is that we want that he has said no to. We decide that it's too hard to do what he has said. That can't be good, we say. It would be too painful. And we reject his word and refuse to do it. We say what's good. We say what's delightful. We, in our boastful wisdom, we say what's right. James also writes of this dynamic in our hearts, that each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it has run its course, brings forth death. Beloved, Why is it that God, through Moses, gives us this step-by-step view of what was going on in Eve's heart? Why do writers like James and John pick up on this text to talk about the progression of sin and that it starts in the heart? The reason is because this is where we must fight. Because the heart, not the hands, not the stomach, not even the eyes, the heart is always the entryway for sin. This was the case for Eve. And we actually find in the text we read earlier at the beginning of the service, this was the case for Satan also. From Ezekiel 28, God says these words to Satan. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. And what was it that filled Satan with violence and led him to sin? God continues, Your heart was haughty because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. You see, Eve, like Satan before her and following his lead, looked to herself, choosing her own wisdom over God's. And again, we do this every time we sin. In our hearts, we corrupt our wisdom from pride in our own ability to decide what is good for us or bad for us. And so often, we call good evil and evil good every time we sin. And again, beloved, this is where we must fight here, our heart, our desires, our value judgments. This is where we must engage the battle. And the question is how? 
one step back. We must push sin back from the entryway of our hearts. Proverbs 25, verse 28 says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Beloved, don't let your heart be an easy entryway for sin, like a city broken into and left without walls. You must, like your Savior did in the desert, when he recapitulated this original conflict and he succeeded where Adam failed, you must resist the devil. You must rule over the creation and subdue it, responding to deadly lies the way Jesus did. Not I feel, or I think, or I would rather, but it is written. You must, using God's wisdom, not your own, resist the, level, the devil and his lies and his suggestions that God's words are not good for you. And as God's word promises, he will flee from you. But of course, returning to our narrative, the rest of verse 6, that is not what Adam and Eve do. Following the exact progression James describes, when the lust having conceived in Eve's heart gives birth to sin, Eve took from the forbidden tree's fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Here is the decisive moment. The one thing God had forbidden, Adam and Eve had done. Not only had sin made its approach, it had landed in the entryway, in Eve's heart, and then apparently in Adam's. Sin has now entered in for both of them, and there is only one stage left to sin's corruption of God's paradise. Whereas Adam and Eve had only ever known a life of abundance and beauty and goodness, now they have what they had foolishly sought. Adam and Eve have, number three, the knowledge of sin. Now what they thought they were bargaining for was a knowledge that would enable them to get even more good for themselves than God had given. What they failed to realize is that God had already given them everything that was good for them. And so, unlike what they hoped, the only addition to their knowledge is that of sin and its consequence. Read with me from verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now what do those first words, then the eyes of them both were opened, what do those words mirror exactly? This is what Satan had said would happen. And again, here's his craftiness. This is how he works. And this is how the world works and how our own flesh works in concert with Satan and the world. The lies are always subtle. They make suggestions rather than demands. They're mostly agreeable with the truth. In fact, they promise to be more trustworthy than God's word. Indeed, as Satan said they would be, their eyes are open. And they even have new knowledge. The eyes of them both were opened, and they knew they were naked. I want to draw your attention to a wordplay in the text that isn't apparent in the English. You may recall that I said the word used to describe the serpent in verse 1 is the Hebrew word, arum, meaning in this context a crafty kind of wisdom or shrewdness. Well, the Hebrew word for naked shares the same letters as that word with one subtle vowel change. The word for naked is arom. 
a room wise or crafty versus a Rome naked. And this wordplay actually extends back to the end of chapter 2 in verse 25. It says there that Adam and Eve were naked, a Rome, and were not ashamed in front of each other. As we saw in our sermon from that text, there was a purity and an innocence in Adam's, Adam and Eve's experience. They were depending on God to tell them what was good or evil. And for God's purposes at the beginning, it was good for them to be naked and unashamed in front of each other. But with sin's approach and entrance through their hearts and into their actions, this innocence is shattered. And so the wordplay comes full circle. They had hoped to have a certain kind of wisdom or shrewdness, a room like the serpent had and like he offered. But instead, all they gain is knowledge of their aroma, their nakedness, their exposure, their need to be covered. They had been covered by God and his goodness and his sufficient knowledge and wisdom, but now they lay open and bare. Before all they sensed was acceptance and fellowship and warmth. Now they sense rejection and exposure and the need for cover. And so, verse 7, they do what people do when they sense and see their own shame. They try to cover it themselves. First, they try to hide it from each other. It says, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. What had just moments before been a blissful and innocent and open fellowship between them was now brokenness, feelings of intense shame and the need to put up barriers and to break off intimate fellowship. So again, Satan had been at least half right. Their eyes were opened. But, depending on how you take his words, he was not right about this. They are dead. Verse 8. Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. So we find that not only do they have the urge to cover themselves from one another, they also hide themselves from God. Rather than enjoying the open and abundant benefits of life that flow from their creator, in their sin and shame, Adam and Eve choose willfully to cut themselves off from God, from the one who is their only source of life and good. And as I said, whenever we sin, we follow the same pattern, thus making real the song lyrics. Choosing death, we fell from life aside the guilty pair. Beloved, God was their life. They, of their own inclination, of their own heart's desire, are now cut off from life. And so it is that the Bible can say that those in an unrepentant state are like Adam and Eve, dead in transgressions and sins, having no hope and without God in the world. Rather than clinging to God, clinging to life and the sweet fellowship of his abundant and life-giving kindness, Adam and Eve try to escape and cover themselves from him, even as they had covered themselves in shame from each other. Friends, everyone knows this impulse. It is the inescapable impulse to use anything. Fig leaves, intelligence, career success, academics, politics, sports, eating, cooking, hobbies, 
religion, morality. We will use anything to cover this pain and this shame, to make ourselves feel acceptable and justified, at least for a moment. But of course, like fig leaves, none of these things will last. In the end, the book of Revelation tells us those who refuse to repent will still be crying out for a covering. They will say to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the sight of him who is on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. Friends, this is knowledge of sin. It is devastating and it is destructive. It is death and its inevitable outcome is death. Now think back to the question we started with. Why is there badness? Why is there sin and death and suffering in the world? We've now clearly seen the answer in three stages. First, sin approached God's paradise in the person of Satan, the serpent. Secondly, Eve and Adam with her as he stood silent made her heart a welcoming entryway for sin. Her heart began to welcome Satan's suggestion that God's word could not be trusted. And finally, the desire for sin's promise gave birth to the act of sin, bringing the promised knowledge of sin. And with this new knowledge, Adam and Eve decided or died to God and even to one another, seeking of their own accord to cut themselves off from goodness, from the joy of fellowship and life. Beloved, sin and death are in the world because of man's rebellious failure to subdue the creation beginning with his and her own heart. Now let's turn the question to you. Are you hiding in the shadows, trying to cover yourself from others and from God? I said a moment ago that we need to do what Adam and Eve failed to do, that we need to engage the battle back at the first step when the suggestion appears wherever it springs from to doubt God's word. And we must speak the truth of God's word over and against the lies we are tempted to believe. But is that just a matter of willpower? Do we in ourselves have the strength to succeed where Adam and Eve failed? Of course not. And so I'm grateful that today's text brings us all the way through verse 8, where there is one hugely important detail I haven't mentioned yet. They heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden. Friends, our strength to engage the battle comes from the place it would ultimately for Adam and Eve also, from God's rescuing presence. Do you think God didn't know what had happened? Do you think God didn't know that they had welcomed the serpent's sinful suggestions through the entryway of their hearts and allowed themselves to be led all the way to taking for themselves the knowledge that had been forbidden and which proved to be their death? Of course he knew. And what's the very next thing we find God doing in the text? Coming to them. Friend, if you are hiding in the shadows... If you know that you are naked before God's justice and your overwhelming sense is one of shame, you must realize, before you even think to do something to cover yourself, you must realize that the same covenant-keeping, loyal, loving Yahweh God who came looking for Adam and Eve has come looking for
for you. Jesus came in his own words to seek and to save the lost. The only requirement is that you stop trying to cover your own shame and guilt, accept that it is rightly yours and you can't do anything about it, and realize that his coming knowingly into your presence when you were still a sinner to die for you. In doing this, he ultimately took what was promised in Genesis 2 on himself, our eternal death to God. He finished it entirely on the cross. And he did so so that we could be restored one day. He's still working this out in the fullness of his plan. One day we will be restored perfectly to the knowledge of only goodness and delight and full fellowship with God and with the Lamb for which we were created. Please pray with me now that the Lord would even hasten that day. Father, we thank you for showing us the darkness of sin and the darkness of our own hearts. And we ask, Father, that you would show it to us for the purpose of making all the more glorious the light of the fact that you came to seek and to save that which was lost. Father, we thank you for your words of judgment and for your words of mercy and ask, Lord, that they would goad our hearts to where we need to go. Father, that we would be enlivened and strengthened, made alive to, to fight the fight, to, to wage the battle exactly where your son did in his time on earth, that we would say with him, it is written and cast out the evil one and all of his suggestions. We pray it in his name. Amen.